Hey everyone, welcome to the Chief Future Officer podcast where we bring the best minds in finance together. This is your host Indus. I am the Chief Savings Officer at Kolam during the week and a pilot on weekends. But enough about me. Let's talk to our very special guest. Welcome to the Chief Future Officer podcast. In today's episode, I have with me Steve Itram. Steve is the managing partner of Evergreen CFO Group. He has held leadership roles at Honeywell and United Health. Steve, welcome to the show. Great privilege to have you. Can we start with your current work? What is Evergreen CFO Group? Absolutely. Uh, pleased to be here. Thank you for having me on. Evergreen CFO Group is, is the entity that I started about two years ago after a previous role ended. As you mentioned in the, the intro, I was with United Health Group for a number of years, with Honeywell then for about 11 years. And then after that, went kind of from a you know big conglomerate down to a, a startup uh, out of San Francisco. They had a Minnesota-based team, which is where I'm located. And that was funded by uh, Gradient Ventures. And uh, after that ended, which was right about the, the same timing as when the COVID pandemic hit, I decided I'm just going to start my own uh, consulting group, uh, focusing on helping small to medium-sized businesses, whether they're just in startup phase or in kind of the growth phase. And since then, I've been working with multiple clients at essentially full capacity right now, doing about 50 hours a week, helping a number of different clients uh, achieve their objectives. Nice. Uh, let's go back in time. Let's talk about your first role as a professional right out of college. Yeah, right out of college. First thing I actually ended up doing was going uh, to a full commission uh, as a financial advisor. So, man, to talk about uh, jumping in the deep end, you know, fully commission, uh, and you're trying to get in front of, of course, higher net worth clients when you're straight out of college. It's not the easiest thing to do. And so I, I did that for a couple of years, had some success, but it was typically with with uh, lower income folks, more kind of in my age demographic at the time. I actually just recently posted a comment on LinkedIn or a column about uh, working with a couple and spending a, a good amount of time with them helping to free up some cash uh, so they could invest in into their future. And when I came back the next week to present the um, the investment plan that I was proposing to them, they had gone out and spent all that extra money on uh, furniture and put it on payments for the next two or three years. So as soon as I started seeing stuff like that, I thought, okay, this personal finance thing, I want to I want to kind of take a different direction. I did some logistics work with Musicland Group for a while. After that, really moved into finance with United Health Group. I got my MBA between working with United Health and Honeywell, specifically in, in finance. And it's just kind of developed since then. Interesting. And I'm assuming you always wanted to be a finance professional. I went into college fairly ambiguous on exactly what I wanted to do, but it was partway through when I, you know, I'm learning that even, you know, when I'm going for runs, I'm actually counting steps and different things like that. Just my mind is geared towards numbers. Uh, it's inherent. I know it's fairly nerdy, but uh, that's just kind of how I'm programmed. So I figured that was probably the right way to go. And then I'm, I'm very glad that I went kind of into finance specifically because it's just, I've, I've found my passion there. I love the competitiveness, uh, actually, of, of the finance environment. And yeah, it's been great. I love, I love seeing how things are evolving and paying attention to kind of to that industry. And, and everyone needs it. You know, everyone needs that financial support, whether on the personal or corporate side. Good finance professionals are important to have. So I'm happy to be part of that. Pretty interesting. I'm curious, after seeing your bio, a lot of finance professionals we have chatted with, they start their career with audit. In your case, you started with financial planning, investment advice. How did that 
track change happen? Isn't it different than what you see in the industry? It is. Yeah. Most people will pick one one way or another. Yes. Oftentimes people start in with audit. I'm happy that I did not have to start necessarily an audit. <laughs> yeah, what a training ground. I have my hats off to the people who are in audit because they are, you know, you don't want to mess with those people because they've, they've got it all locked down. But as my career has morphed, I, I certainly fall more on the side of the kind of strategic finance side of trying to put that vision out there, uh, develop that roadmap. You know, if you look at kind of the, the, the traction, the, the visionary versus the executor, I'm more kind of, I hate to call myself visionary, but more on kind of the bigger idea. And there are other people much more equipped to handle kind of that transactional type of finance support. So uh, my, my first true real finance role was at uh, Honeywell doing, uh, you know, support for one of the factories in the Minneapolis area uh, on the FP&A lead side and just kind of grew through that. So it's, yeah, it's probably a little non-traditional from, from typical, but I appreciate where it's, where it's got me today. It allowed me to focus more on the things that I enjoy doing on the strategic side. Very interesting. And you mentioned that recently you were part of the startup that was venture funded. And then before that, you were Honeywell, 100,000 plus employees across the globe. How does that transition work for you? Like from a very large corp to working for a startup? Yeah, it, it, and it wasn't necessarily by choice what it was actually happening. I won't go too far into the details just for you know, privacy and whatnot, but the uh, Honeywell was moving the division I was working for down to down to Texas. Uh, I just wasn't really interested in relocating. I'm very fair-skinned Nor- Norwegian, Scandinavian. <laughs> I would melt in the Texas sun. And so I said, you know what? I've been here 11 years. It's time for me to kind of do something different. So that's, and, and, and I thought for really kind of scaling out, I knew at some point I wanted to consult, but I needed to broaden my experience a bit. So that's why uh, when the opportunity came up to go with a very nimble, just pre-revenue startup. I thought this is the kind of experience I want to have. Even if it's a, a little bit of a high flyer, a little bit more risk, I certainly learned an incredible amount in that and it better prepared me for, for consulting and fitting or supporting people in different growth stages of their, of their organizations. Did anything change based on what you did at Honeywell or United versus what you were doing at a startup on a day-to-day basis? Or was like, Hey, more intense, no time in the day, a lot of things to do. Yeah, a lot. I mean, consider going from Honeywell, which is uh, well well established, down to a startup which is just burning through cash, you know, like crazy. So a lot of lot more cash management. Uh, certainly not that that wasn't a concern, you know, at a Fortune forty, but that's really not much of a not something you have to worry about too much. But much more cash management, much more projection. You know, three weeks of being into the role, I was sitting. Um, sitting in, in um, Silicon Valley in the boardroom, kind of showing the projections for this company. I, I joined three weeks earlier uh, and convincing for, you know, going for another round of funding. So it's just kind of thrown to the wolves uh, right in the deep end. <laughs> and, uh, you know, looking at certainly the, the, the parabolic and the exponential type of uh, growth rates that you're projecting, as opposed to a, a big corporate, you know, you're, you're kind of trying to log in that 5 or 6% annual growth rate routinely, you know, so significantly different dynamics between the two. Got it. Talk about uh, the CFO group. You know, what does clientele look like? What services? How do you help them? The services are whatever the client really needs. Uh, again, I'll, I'll fit a, a better niche of the small, the, the startup to small, medium-sized companies. Large corporations usually have the, the funding to bring on people full-time. But I'm really kind of fitting that niche and I'm seeing more demand for it all the time, especially with COVID having 
you know, killed a number of small companies, but actually uh, starting a, an incredible amount of new companies as well. People are looking for that experienced CFO support on their side, but maybe don't have the funding to do to get the level of experience they want at the price that they can afford. Um, and so a fractional can step in there and, and kind of fit that bill. So I've been focusing on that niche. My primary client where I spend most of my time is a manufacturer that was doing very poorly uh, right at the outset of, of COVID. And a former colleague of mine at Honeywell uh, had just been put in as CEO, asked me to step in because they needed a, a significant turnaround. Very pleased to say about two years later, we are in acquisition phase now looking for other companies to acquire and bring under the umbrella because results have turned around so uh, significantly. Another client is a, a technology incubator uh, that's got some incredible industrial technologies, uh, but is very much in kind of the startup phase and is looking for, for fundraising. So I help with that piece. Just recently brought on another client, just a, a, you know, a, a few hours here and there, but they are uh, in construction and they are growing so quickly in their market that they are cash strapped. So it's helping them to just kind of deal with not necessarily the growth. They don't need the growth. They need help just with kind of cash management to free up working capital so they can actually complete the jobs that they've been hired to do. So it's really just kind of fitting what that client needs at the time and stepping into that and just helping them with in a way that their budget can afford to. Interesting. And these are customers or clients that are known to you in the past or they just reach out, hey, Steve, I need help. <laughs> the, the first one is because I had worked uh, worked with them in the past. So they knew me well enough to know that I could help support what, what their objective was, which was the turnaround. The other ones honestly came, I've been very relaxed with my definition of how I can support and be paid by customers. My second one reached out to me because I had put that I'm open to equity type arrangements too. When you're, when you're fractional, you can just, you know, my lifestyle and my other clients allow me to, you know, if there are startups who are, are even more cash strapped, I can step in and just say, hey, what, what does an equity position look like on this if I believe in that? And we can, we can operate it that way. So they just, apparently I was referred somewhere to one of the, the uh, owners of that. Um, so a friend of a friend of a friend, who knows, I still don't know the backstory there, uh, but I was somewhat referred in there and they were open to my, my type of arrangement. Uh, the other one has been through, that one was even through LinkedIn and the most recent one was through LinkedIn. So it's just kind of getting some content out there too, for if, if people are playing in the independent space, putting out content, you know, on, on LinkedIn is the, you know, the best place to do it of how you can support. That's where demand comes from, where, where leads come from. Again, I'm, I'm currently at full capacity. I have not marketed myself at all. And new calls come in all the time uh, for people looking for other help. So there's, there's tremendous opportunity out there for other people in that space. Interesting. We'll ask a slightly different question. And this one, I ask all my guests, you know, who have spent you know, 10, 15 years in different parts of the industry, large businesses, small businesses. Do you think the role of a finance leader has evolved or changed dramatically in the last decade? You know, because the tech has come in and how we perceive a small versus large versus CFO's role. What's your point of view on this? Yeah, if we look at the last decade, I mean, certainly if you go back further than that, it's, you know, the dynamics are different even yet. But I think with technology ramping up as fast as it, as it is, one example is my primary client I'm working with technically deals with tangible products, but we are desperately trying to move towards software-based offerings, not only just because of 
you know, supply chain dynamics around the world right now. And it's, it's so difficult to, to get your supply chain in order, which we're, we're doing fairly well at, but it's still a hurdle. But just having kind of that recurring revenue stream through whether it's subscription based or whether it's uh, something that can be digitally offered, uh, that's that's a huge adder. So, it, yeah, um, as technology ramps and that's just uh, more expected in the industry these days, definitely trying to move towards that. Has it become more tools savvy in general than, hey, just get the job done savvy? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Another example with, with my primary client, it's a manufacturer that's been around for about 40 or 50 years and has evolved pretty significantly. But we are certainly trying to, instead of bringing on additional folks to handle certain certain roles, we will look to outside support, whether it's fractional support or software tools that can help us do the job faster, better, more reliably um, without adding that additional overhead aside from you know some subscription cost or some support fees. So it's, it's definitely equipped businesses to handle, to, to operate more efficiently. Yeah, it, it, it certainly has changed the environment. Got it. And if I may ask, are there problems that you see still not being addressed by some of these tools or some things that you want, hey, it should be done in a better way? If I knew the answer to that, I'd probably be building it myself and uh, putting, <laughs> putting that out there as an offering. So that's, <laughs> that, that's a great task. I actually have something kind of in the works in the, in the background that... Uh, can't share too much about, but it, it's really still trying to um, solve some of those needs out there in the market. I can't point to anything right off the bat that uh, I can point to. No worries. One of the questions I ask, we also have much younger audience who have or graduated or about to graduate from college. These are professionals trying to pick, hey, finance or engineering or something else. You mentioned about your career would you do something else or the way how your career has progressed, would you have done something differently than what you did? No. And I'm very happy with, with where that's ended. I've, you know, you can always look back in the past and determine, okay, I wish I had done this a little differently or known this sooner. But again, having gone from a, a, a big corporate structure down to a startup, you know, prior to that, I, I was interested in consulting, but I just, I honestly didn't have the, the, the bandwidth or the scope of experience to feel as comfortable as I do now in addressing that, you know, especially as I'm helping startups or, or small companies, just that scope of experience really helps. So no, I wouldn't change anything about the past. I give kudos to anybody who's in any of the hard sciences, the maths, the engineerings and, and whatnot. I certainly value that over uh, a number of other degrees that we hear about from time to time, but I can encourage, you know, that there, there are certain industries that are always going to, to be there. I mean, engineering is one of them. Healthcare is, is one of them. But finance is right up there too. You need talented individuals to lead and give strategy to a business. As you were mentioning, you know, software offerings, there's there's more and more things out there every day that help automate some of the more kind of routine tasks. So if if you are approaching finance purely from kind of the transactional standpoint, if I just wanted I want to process debits and credits and do accounting, there will still always be a need, but there's tools that kind of are typically you know, trying to, to automate that, make that simpler and make it more redundant to facilitate better data analytics for strategic finance leaders to really focus the the strategy, the, the forward-looking landscape for any organization. You know, very interesting. One of the things that always baffled me, I'm not a finance professional, but work with a lot of finance professionals, is how intense the job is. I thought my job is tough, but you know, 
quarter, month, book closing, demands from RevRec, demands from expenses. How do you manage your day in such of an intensity? You certainly need to surround yourself with good people or, again, the right tools. The, the, the tools could be that foundation of just trying to routinely automate anything that you possibly can. If you don't surround yourself with other doers, like I mentioned, I'm kind of more on the strategic side. If I didn't have a very capable accounting manager sitting right next to me, handling many more of the kind of transactional things, uh, I would I would drown probably fairly quickly. So get the right players in the tree on the team. Always have uh, people in, in specific strategic positions to, to cover what you need. So most of my day is spent uh, dealing with either new things that come up, new issues, new problems, whether it's supply chain, whether it's uh, HR internally, whether it's uh, communications, whether it's uh, looking for acquisitions and new opportunities comes up, whether it's uh, bank relations and, and you know managing that. You know, my, my day is more kind of free floating, can go in any which direction. It's usually different than what I expect uh, it to be when I start in the morning. But I, I do enjoy that part of it, too. It's very dynamic. It's changing, but it challenges me every day. Any specific productivity hacks? Pivot tables. Pivot tables are wonderful. <laughs> that's, that, 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 that's so cliche, so old. But yeah, I'm, I'm still an Excel guy. And, uh, you know, in terms of just getting, I, I love big data. I love throwing it, you know, downloading it, throwing it in an Excel sheet. If I've got the right analytical framework set up of just refreshing that and seeing it in a whole new light, I'm currently working on a project right now that's taking multiple different variables of looking, whether it's at our customers, our, our vendors, uh, our product lines, whatever, and using kind of multiple different data factors to say, should we really be continue working with these customers or with these vendors? Are they too high a cost to serve? Are they taking too much of our time? Is it strong margin and are they growing or are they uh, declining? And, and just looking at that, and that could all be done, you know, dump it down into an Excel sheet, hit the refresh, and I, I love my pivot tables. Pivot tables during weekends or no Excel during the weekend? <laughs> That's too much excitement for the weekend as well. <laughs> I have to limit myself. How does your weekend look like most weekends? Yeah, most weekends, I don't sit still very well. So Saturdays, I, I usually allow myself to catch up with sleep because every other day it's up before 5 a.m., but I allow myself to, to sleep in a little bit, but then it's usually projects around the house. We have a little hobby farm. We just started raising chickens, oh. uh, building a greenhouse right now. So projects around the house usually. Uh, and then Sunday, uh, we call it Sunday fun day. So I've, I've got a wonderful wife of 21 years and four kids. Uh, and so we just try to spend time together. And we, we do on Saturday as well, but that's kind of more devoted to, to fun, whatever that is. In the, the summer, it's usually single track, mountain bike, mountain biking, you know, over roots and rocks and stumps and jumps and stuff like that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, in the winter, it's skiing, snowboarding, you know, always hiking and doing stuff like that. But we'll try to make sure Sunday comes in with, uh, you know, we, we, we attend church in the morning too, but then I guess it's not relaxing when you're, when you're going out doing something, you know, that, that takes that energy, but I enjoyed it. It certainly, uh, reinvigorates me uh, emotionally and gets me ready for the week as well, spending the time with the family. Nice. Love that. The mountain biking one is a great one. I, I remember seeing pictures on on LinkedIn, if I'm not wrong, you having fun with the family. You know, that's amazing. It kind of decompresses you and prepares for the upcoming week. Yes, it does. Changing subjects a little bit. Did you have mentors growing up in high school or early in your career? I can't point to specific mentors. They're... they're uh, you know, I can always point back to a number of teachers that 
you know, I, I remember specific things they taught me, whether it's either positive or honestly negative on, on some cases too, of, of what I don't want to be or don't want to pursue. My father, of course, was a fantastic example. I, I shouldn't say, of course, because for a lot of people, that's not the case. I was very blessed to have a father who worked very hard, but also was able to balance the, the family piece too. So you could, he had high demands uh, of him and his work, uh, but he was still there for, for games and different things that I was part of. So he was a role model, a uh, number of teachers who just conveyed the, the discipline of hard work and not being apologetic about kind of pursuing what you want to do and what you think is appropriate and is helping society and is, and is improving other people's lives. I mentioned the, the, the negative too of those who had influence. I had one teacher, one always sticks in my mind of a, of a teacher. Uh, you know, I was, I would have been classified as one of the jocks in high school, you know, cause I just, I played sports and I didn't do a, a lot of the sideline more kind of uh, mental, you know, the debate team or anything like that. But I had a teacher who he certainly looked at me that way as kind of a jock. But when I handed in a, a research paper that was, he, he thought was very good. He actually wrote on it very well done. If it's actually yours, we'll see on the next one. <laughs> and so, I mean, I don't look at that with, with, uh, with animosity or anything, but I always look at that and be, be like, okay, so there's, there's people out there that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to prove them wrong. Um, you know, they had low expectations of me. I'm going to have higher expectations of myself. Um, so there's, you know, you try to draw the positive from any, any interactions, but there's certainly been other people in my life too, who have just fed into it. Uh, my current the CEO who I used to work with at Honeywell, who called me into this, this current role, huge amount of respect for, you know, struggling manufacturer at the time, but just due to his work ethic, how close he was to everybody in the whole company. Uh, when he was at Honeywell, his leadership style, his management, all these different things. Uh, when he called up just kind of out of the blue, when I started consulting and asked if I knew anyone, I said, well, I just happened to be going independent myself. He said, come on in. A uh, huge amount of respect for him as well, because he's just, he's been a fantastic leader that people can rally around. Very interesting. Any books that were your source of inspiration? Well, okay, I, I don't know how uh, how cliche it is. I listen to some other podcasts and some of the most cliche books come up all the time. Uh, but I, I will have to say just in terms of like mental mindset, especially when you're thinking of finance, books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or The Richest Man in Babylon are, are great ones for just kind of I think there's a lack of financial education amongst whether it's students or even the, the population these days. And I think this kind of resets and reframes how people can look at things to complete their objectives, to go for their, their goals. One that actually was fairly impactful on me, and I, I will try not to get political here, but it is Atlas Shrugged. And it just kind of shows, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. It's a 1,200 pager, I think. Yeah. Uh, it was a labor of love to get through that. But it really kind of shows the dynamic of how a free market is the driving force and intervention from outside sources, whether it's bureaucracy or whatever, tends to actually, you know, undermine real productivity and real support and making people's lives better. So those were those were impactful ones for me. Yeah, those are great recommendations. In fact, I love the way Rich Dad Poor Dad frames it. It's not your emotions, but your deeds that's going to count. You know, very well articulated in that book. Yes, yes. And just to educate yourself, Rick Kiyosaki has been just such a proponent of just getting education and listening to people who don't, don't get yourself in an echo chamber, but listen to people who have contrary views because 
you either may learn something or it may, you know, like as iron sharpens iron, it, it may just help reinforce what you believe, but it makes you think critically about that dynamic and, and test what you believe. So education is very key. Wonderful. We're coming towards the end of this segment. So last couple of questions, and this is basically based on the current market conditions and macroeconomic outlook. What is your point of view on what's happening in the financial markets? I thought I had uh, predictions of this, you know, two years ago when we were going into the pandemic, I had kind of cleared out of my equities 45 days before that hit and thought I was a, thought I was a genius because I thought things were toppy at that point. But then the, the meteoric rise ever since, you know, it just a, a lot of things kind of go contrary to real fundamentals these days. I think we're still fairly overweighted, even when you look at the market itself. I feel like there's a lot of lot more room to go, to be honest, to, to go down. We've this nation is kind of uh, spent prolifically for a number of years. And I don't think we've really seen the consequences of that yet. And that's kind of bearing down. We can see it, of course, through the inflation numbers. I don't think we've seen the top of that yet. I think there's still some room for that to run for quite a while until the Fed kind of gets ahead of it. But of course, then, as, as most people know, once we finally get ahead of it, we're, we're probably so high in interest rates and whatnot that it's going to push uh, the U.S. into recession, a fairly sizable one. So I, th- I think there's still some rough times ahead, to be honest, for, for the market itself. I look at the kind of the, what, what's going on uh, energy-wise in Europe right now, a kind of an energy crisis. Uh, I believe by this winter, you know, the U.S. will see some of that as well. We're quickly drawing down our strategic oil reserves. We're not uh, replenishing in most in most ways. People's pockets are already pinched through you know gas and food and inflation and other parts. So when energy prices start going back up, I, there's still some pain ahead, I believe. In terms of the the capital markets, the the finance markets, which you're saying it. So you're you're certainly seeing that in kind of the more retail type of market. But it's, it's funny as I'm talking with other doing other projects in the background, whether it's real estate, whether it's uh, startups, there's still plenty of capital out there to be found uh, that are people are looking to deploy. In fact, you know, at times like this, they know that there's maybe some blood in the streets and it's time to time to acquire. So I think those who've acted fairly prudently in the last few years and kind of whether stockpiled the capital or have made some good decisions are now in a position to kind of move on. Um, fear in the market on other other places. So there's still great opportunity. You just have to uh, have your pitch a little bit more refined and ready to go uh, to secure that. Fantastic. I'm going to ask a related question based on your comment. And that's my last question to you, Steve. Venture funder, startup founder comes to you for advice. Hey, I need help in becoming profitable. What would you tell me? Of course, depends on quite a number of factors. But one, one thing that I think a lot of people are shying away from these days is pricing. I think there's a, a huge hesitancy. You know, you look at the like, now we're talking more startup, but if it, just in general, in terms of kind of more macroeconomics, the, the producer price index has been higher than the consumer price index for, I think it's been like 20 months straight now. So for quite some time, producers have been just absorbing the, the effects of inflation on their, from their supply chain downstream and haven't been passing it along to their, their customers. And not that I want to see inflation to the customer go higher, but it's it's going to happen. I think a lot of people are just trying to hold back just to say, okay, we're trying to weather the storm and then things will calm down. Well, if things aren't calming down, they need to pass that through. And so you have to look very, very heavily at your, your pricing 
and make sure that you're pricing your product or your service accurate for the what, what the market demands. If you really have a good service, you should be able to charge well for it and refining your value proposition just to make sure that, okay, I do this one thing, right? I offer this one service very well. I'm going to price accordingly for it to make sure you're, you're finding those select customers who, who will pay for that. And then to be honest, not to be uh, self-promoting, but finding good finance people who will help give you that strategic direction and vision and the, the foundation on which to build. Your question, you know, started with uh, someone already comes to me and asked ask the question, but I think a lot of people, small business owners, hesitate to do that. They'll just find kind of a, a low budget bookkeeper, and that, that's not wrong. I'm, I love bookkeepers, but if you don't have someone strategic in there helping with kind of the, the tax and strategy, the pricing, the the banking relationships, the fundraising, all the different aspects that go with you know having that financial foundation, uh, you're doing yourself a, a disservice. Super. That's a fantastic advice, Steve. Thank you for your time. It was a pleasure having you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Indus. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Chief Future Officer podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback and it'd be amazing if you could share this with anyone who may find this interesting. That's me, Indus from Kolam, signing off. See you in the next episode.